Section 61 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter 11 A Discovery. A reef in the vicinity of the coast is sometimes visited by men. A reef in the open sea, never. Why should one go there? It is not an island. No fresh supply of provisions is to be hoped for. No fruit trees no pasturages, no cattle, no springs of water fit to drink. It is nudity in solitude. It is a rock with cliffs above the water and sharp points below the water. Nothing is to be found there but shipwreck. This species of reefs, which the ancient dialect of the sea calls les isolés, are, as we have said, strange places. The sea is alone there, it does what it wills. No terrestrial apparition disturbs it. Man frightens the sea, it distrusts him. It hides from him what it is and what it does. In the reef it regains assurance. Man will not come there. The monologue of the waves will not be troubled. It works at the reef, repairs its injuries, sharpens its points renders it bristling, makes it over, maintains it in condition. It undertakes the piercing of the rock, disintegrates the soft stone, denudes the hard stone, removes the flesh, leaves the skeleton, searches, dissects, bores, pierces, channels, puts the cecums in communication, fills the reef with cells, imitates the sponge on a grand scale, hollows out the inside, carves the outside. In this secret mountain which belongs to it, it makes caverns, sanctuaries, palaces. It possesses all manner of hideous and splendid vegetation, composed of floating grasses which bite, and of monsters which take root. It conceals beneath the shadow of the water this frightful magnificence. In the isolated reef, nothing watches it, spies upon it, or disturbs it. There it develops at its ease its mysterious side, which is inaccessible to man. There it deposits its living and horrible secret things. All the unknown wonders of the sea are there. The promontories, capes, headlands, shoals, and reefs are, we insist upon it, true structures. The geological formation is but little in comparison with the oceanic formation. The reefs, those homes of the billows, those pyramids and syringes of foam, belong to a mysterious art which the author of this book has somewhere entitled the Art in Nature, and have a sort of enormous style. The effect of chance there seems to be by design. These structures are multiform. They possess the confusion of the coral formation, the sublimity of the cathedral, the extravagance of the pagoda, the amplitude of the mountain, the delicacy of the jewel, the horror of the sepulchre. They have cells like a wasp's nest, lairs like a menagerie, tunnels like a mole-burrow, dungeons like a prison, ambuscades like a camp. They have doors but they are barricaded, columns, but they are truncated, towers, but they are leaning, bridges, 
but they are broken. Their compartments are adapted to one use and only one. This is only for birds. That is only for fish. They are insurpassable. Their architectural figure is transformed, disconcerted. It is in accordance with the law of statics, and contradictory to it, breaks off, stops short, begins as an archivolt, ends in an architrave, block on block. Enceladus is the mason. An extraordinary system of dynamics here exhibits its problems solved. Alarming pendentives threaten but do not fall. One knows not how these dizzy structures are held together. Everywhere they overhang and deviate from the perpendicular. There are gaps, senseless suspensions. The law of this babble hides itself. The great unknown architect makes no plans, yet accomplishes everything. The rocks, piled up in confusion, compose a huge monument. No logic, a vast equilibrium. It is more than solidity, it is eternity. At the same time it is disorder. The tumult of the waves seems to have passed into the granite. A reef is the tempest petrified. Nothing more moves the mind than that wild architecture, always crumbling, yet always erect. All things there lend assistance to each other and are opposed to each other. It is a combat of lines whence results an edifice. One there recognizes the collaboration of these two enemies, the ocean and the hurricane. This architecture has its terrible masterpieces. The Douvre Reef was one of them. The sea had fashioned and perfected this one with formidable love. The surly waters licked it. It was hideous, treacherous, obscure full of caverns. It had a whole Venus system of submarine holes branching out in the fathomless depths. Many orifices of this inextricable boring were dry at low water. One could enter at one's own risk and peril. Gilead was obliged to explore all these grottos in order to save his wreckage. There was not one which was not frightful. Everywhere in these caverns there was reproduced with the exaggerated dimensions of the ocean that aspect of the slaughterhouse and the butcher's shambles strangely imprinted on the passage of the Douvre. He who has not seen, in excavations of this nature, on the wall of eternal granite, these frightful frescoes of nature, can form no idea of them. These ferocious grottos were treacherous. One must not tarry too long in them, high tide filled them to the very ceiling. The rock limpets and sea-mosses abounded there. They were encumbered with boulders, piled in a heap at the extremities of the vaults. Many of these boulders weighed more than a ton. They were of all sizes and all colors. The majority appeared to be bleeding. Some, covered with hairy and glutinous seaweed, seemed great green moles burrowing among the rocks. Many of these caves terminated abruptly in a low, spherical vault. Others, arteries of a mysterious circulation, were prolonged in the rock in dark and tortuous fissures. They were the streets of the abyss. A man could not pass through these fissures, for they gradually contracted. 
a lighted torch revealed dripping obscurity. Once Gilead, in his search, ventured into one of these fissures. The state of the tide was favorable. It was a fine, calm, sunny day. No accident of the sea, which could increase the risk, was to be feared. Two necessities urged Gilead to these explorations, as we have already pointed out, the necessity of seeking useful fragments to save, and that of finding crabs and crawfish for his sustenance. Shellfish began to fail him in the Dure. The fissure was contracted and passage almost impossible. Gilead saw light beyond. He made an effort, drew himself together, rised to the utmost of his ability, and advanced as far as possible. He found himself, without suspecting it, precisely in the interior of the rock on the point of which Clubin had run the Durande. Gilead was beneath this point. The rock, abrupt on the exterior and inaccessible, was hollow within. There were galleries, wells, and chambers, as in the tomb of an Egyptian king. This undermining was one of the most complicated among those labyrinths, the work of the water, the indefatigable sapper of the sea. The branches of this cavern beneath the sea probably communicated with the immense watery expanse outside by more than one issue, some yawning on a level with the waves, others deep, invisible funnels. It was quite close to this place that Clubin had cast himself into the sea, but Gilead did not know it. Gilead in that crocodile's crevice, where, it is true, crocodiles were not to be feared, writhed and climbed, bumped his head, bent, straightened up again, lost his footing, and regained it again advanced painfully. Little by little the passage widened, a glimmer of half-daylight appeared, and Gilead suddenly entered an extraordinary cavern. End of chapter 11 A Discovery